is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. You know, for the last several evenings, we've had calls in here from truckers with real-world experience in terms of this supply train, and um, one of them pointed out the difficulty for owner-operators functioning in California. You don't hear this on television news. Another one pointed out the difficulty in dealing with the, the state's environmental and regulatory environment. You don't hear that either. By the end of the weekend, there's going to be over 100 freighters off the shore of Longport and L.A. ports sitting there and waiting. Over 100 of these massive freighters with these containers on them, these huge containers. So I wanted to focus in on this, and Zero Hedge, an excellent website, has also taken a look at this. And he writes, as a couple of astute articles explain, the problem is California has passed two laws, one for so-called climate change and the other as a sop to the unions that destroyed much of California's trucking industry. And in woes unique to the industry and COVID payments that discourage people from working and voila, empty Christmas stockings. Stephen Green at PJ Media explains some of what's going on. He says, as a preliminary matter, truckers are aging out of the job and new ones aren't coming along because federal law requires that truckers be at least 21 years old. Kids who leave school at 17 or 18 get involved in other careers, leaving trucker shortfalls. Now, of course, they're old enough to go to war, but apparently not old enough to drive 18-wheelers. Women don't offset this problem because, as is typical for most specialty, uh, uh, typical, uh, physically difficult jobs, it's not their thing, he writes, although I've seen women truckers. But those are long-term problems. The short-term problem, though, is that California's passed laws taking truckers off the road. Twitter user 
Jerry Oakley reminds us that carriers domiciled in California with trucks older than 2011, that's just 10 years, or using engines manufactured before 2010, just 11 years, will need to meet the board's new truck and bus regulation beginning in 2020. Otherwise, their vehicles will be blocked from registration with the state's DMV according to California law. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the situation. It's 2021, beyond 2020. The requirement is to purchase electric trucks, which do not exist. Sundance, a conservative treehouse, expands on this, explaining that the EPA reached an agreement with California Air Resource Board to shut down semi-tractor rigs that were non-compliant with new California emission standards. In effect, what this 2020 determination and settlement created was an inability of half the nation's truckers, half the nation's truckers, from picking up anything from the Port of L.A. or the Port of Long Beach. Virtually all private owner-operator trucks and half the fleet trucks that are used for moving containers across the nation were shut out. Remember the trucker who called? Owner-operator said, I'm not allowed to do business in California. Remember that, Mr. Producer? However, the in an effort to excuse me, in an effort to offset the problem, transportation companies started using compliant trucks to take the products to the California state line, where they could be transferred to non-compliant trucks that cannot enter California. But the scale of the problem creates an immediate bottleneck that builds over time. It doesn't matter if the ports start working 24-7. They're only going to end up with even more containers waiting on a limited amount of available trucks. So, just to recap so far, there's more. The state of California prohibits trucks that are older than 2011 models or using engines manufactured before 2010 from doing business in their state. They can't get registrations with the state DMV, according to California law. Federal law prevents 18, 19, and 20-year-olds from driving trucks. That's federal law. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, again, according to Green, is California's infamous AB5. The law, as a sop to the Democrats' beloved units, killed the gig economy. Traditionally, the ports have been served by owner-operators, Oakley says, who are non-union. But under AB5, California is now banned owner-operators. Banned owner-operators. It's a lot of truckers. Just like the union longshoremen, union trucks work under a whole host of work rules that simply cannot accommodate crisis conditions like the ones in L.A. Incidentally, Green says that AB5's language is included in the Build Back Better bill in Congress. And there's a lot of this kind of SOP language in that bill, by the way, that will further paralyze our economic system. All of this means that Biden's grandstanding about having the ports operate 24-7 won't make a difference, which is exactly what that toy manufacturer said on Fox that we played for you the other day. The greenies and the unions killed the infrastructure to unload those ships. With COVID restrictions, trucking restrictions, free money landing the coup de grace that led to this situation. Biden does have the emergency power to order those California laws in abeyance. 
but you know he's not going to do it. But of course, the more serious underlying problem is that in a distant, wonderful past, America didn't need to rely on containers from Asia to fill the store shelves and Christmas stockings. America was a manufacturing dynamo that fulfilled American needs and still had enough left over for the rest of the world. Those things were well made too, as he points out. Thanks to a devil's bargain with communist China, we have no manufacturing sector and are utterly dependent on China, both for things we like and things we need. Biden's inflationary politics and crackdown on fossil fuels means that it'll be virtually impossible for a renaissance in American manufacturing. Trump tried to stop this situation, but China owns so much of America's political and industrial class that the pushback shackled his presidency and pushed him straight out of the White House, he says. Now, we touched on this the other day, but now we have more information. So why isn't this being reported on the business shows, on the television networks, and on the cable networks? Why isn't it being discussed that the Democrats, the unions, and the radical environmentalists have all but destroyed the infrastructure for the supply chain from the West Coast to the rest of the country. Now, you haven't had a rational or understandable explanation before why this is going on. All the, the virus, increased demand, all the stuff we're getting from China. We've been getting a lot of stuff from China for a long time. Why now? Why is this going on now? Now you know why. Now you know why. Because the truth is, truckers who want a truck are not permitted to. They're not permitted to. And so now you have bottlenecks. The rules and the regulations under which many of the truckers who do work are imposed by their unions, making it very, very difficult as well as the longshoremen, who I have respect for all these people, by the way. That's not my point. Joe Biden couldn't do what Harry Truman did with the steel mills. He could ensure that they'd be opened when he put down a strike. Joe Biden could, as an emergency situation, temporarily repeal all the restrictions, but he won't. This is the same Joe Biden when he was a candidate, talked about using the Defense Production Act, remember, to bring the government in, to bring the military in, to take over the private sector to build more masks and ventilators and all the rest. Here, he doesn't even have to use the Defense Production Act. All he has to do is wave a magic wand, indicate this is a real emergency to the American people, and suspend these regulations. These regulations by the state of California, by the various unions, and his own Environmental Protection Agency. But he won't do it. And it is shocking to me that business reporters aren't reporting on this. Well, I am. I'm no business reporter, but I know what the hell's going on. I'll be right back. Mark in.
In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. People have wondered, where's Kamala Harris when it comes to the border, right? Where's Kamala Harris? And then people wondered, where's Pete Buttigieg when it comes to transportation and the supply chain and truckers and freighters and containers and all the rest? Well, he was on paternity leave for two months. For two months. So... When Pazaki, the serial liar for the idiot president, is lying to the American people about how they've been working on this for months, she failed to tell the American people that the Secretary of Transportation, the key individual who's supposed to be, you know, captaining this sort of thing, uh, was missing in action, that he was on paternity leave. It's also amazing that the President of the United States didn't call him back into action either. It's just that people finally figured out the guy hasn't been around. That's how seriously this administration takes the shortages, the supply chain failures. That's how serious they are about it. I worked in an administration, the Reagan administration, where the Secretary of Transportation was a gentleman by the name of Drew Lewis. You might remember Drew Lewis... He's since deceased. He was a very good man. And the uh, PATCO went on strike. The air traffic controllers, they violated their contract. They violated federal law. Because FAA personnel are not permitted to go on strike. For obvious reasons, they shut down the air traffic in this country, which would be devastating. Reagan asked... Drew Lewis, who'd been a businessman his entire life, and a damn good one. Well, let's put out a plan. Let's get a plan ready. Because if they strike, I'm going to fire them. They struck. Reagan gave them 24 hours to return. Some returned, some didn't. Those who did not return were fired. It didn't affect... Air flight in the least. Not commercial, not passenger. They had moved military aircraft controllers into the civilian towers at the various airports. And then they went on a hiring spree and a training spree 
And it went very, very well. That's a Secretary of Transportation. That's a President of the United States. This is the weakest President, the weakest Vice President, the weakest Cabinet in modern American history. People chosen not because of their substance, not based on merit, but because who they are, what they look like, what they do with their genitalia, what they've done for Biden, or if they served in the Obama administration. That's about it. Six or seven elements. And so you have a disaster. You have a disaster on the border. You have a disaster in Afghanistan. You have a disaster when it comes to the supply chain. It's all a disaster. It's terrible. So Buttigieg is back now, ladies and gentlemen. And now he's doing media. Media. It doesn't seem like he's hard at work. Plus, he doesn't know what to do. The guy doesn't know anything about transportation or supply lines. Or, he doesn't know a damn thing. He doesn't know what to do. He's not even learning on the job. He's not on the job. Pretty shocking, isn't it? Secretary of Transportation is nowhere. The Vice President's nowhere. President of the United States bumping into walls. Pretty frightening. If you ask me. Really, very frightening, if you ask me. Something happened at the Interior Department that I want to inform you about. There was an insurrection. I was once, for a short period of time, the number two lawyer at the Interior Department, the deputy solicitor. Um, I was recruited by the Interior Secretary, Don Hotel, a great man, from the Department of Justice, where I'd worked for Attorney General Meese, and I went over to become the uh, number two lawyer over there, the Deputy Solicitor at Interior. I was summoned back six months later to the Department of Justice, where I became Chief of Staff to the Attorney General. But I'm quite familiar with the Interior Department and the main building in Washington, D.C., and there was an insurrection. And I want to tell you about this when we return. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Ever notice how you come across somebody once in a while that you shouldn't have messed with? That's Mark. And you can call him at 877-381-3811. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there was an attempted insurrection at the Department of Interior. And I want to make you aware of it. The Washington Compost has reported on this, Ellie Silverman. But of course, they don't call it an insurrection, but that's what it was. A department spokesperson said security personnel sustained, quote, multiple injuries, unquote. One officer was taken to a hospital. Police and climate activists clashed yesterday during protests at the Interior Department with security personnel sustaining multiple injuries and one officer being taken to a hospital, agency spokeswoman Melissa Schwartz said. 
climate demonstrators who are attempting to occupy the Interior Department, with dozens entering the Stuart Lee Udall Main Interior Building on C Street Northwest. Those who remained outside clashed with police as they tried to keep the one unlocked door open. At times, protesters attempted to push past the police line. The protesters were here for People versus Fossil Fuels, five days of demonstrations by a coalition of groups known as Build Back Fossil Free that has included indigenous leaders from across the country. The coalition's name is a nod to Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Now, People versus Fossil Fuels sent in a statement that 55 people were arrested during the protest, including indigenous leaders, and said police acted aggressively by using tasers on at least two people and batons to hit others. A spokesperson for the Federal Protective Service, which Schwartz said responded to the protest to mitigate the situation, did not immediately respond to requests for comment on police tactics and arrests. I bet you weren't aware of this insurrection. Protesters said they wanted to speak with Interior Secretary Deb Halen, the first Native American to hold the position. Halen was traveling outside Washington at the time, Schwartz said in a statement. Interior Department leadership believes strongly in respecting and upholding the right to free speech and peaceful protest, Schwartz said in a statement. It's our obligation also to keep everyone safe. We will continue to do everything we can to de-escalate the situation while honoring First Amendment rights. Now, photos and video from inside the building show dozens of climate demonstrators, including indigenous leaders, sitting and holding hands. Jennifer Falcone, an indigenous environmental network spokeswoman, tweeted from inside the building that police were arresting people. Thursday was the fourth day of climate demonstrations as part of the People versus Fossil Fuels action in the nation's capital. Activists are demanding that Biden stop approving fossil fuel projects and declare a national climate emergency. Each morning this week, hundreds of protesters have descended upon Lafayette Square to demonstrate in front of the White House. Climate activists with the group Extinction Rebellion rallied outside the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on Thursday, with some climbing onto a ledge to release smoke flares. Others used retrofitted fire extinguishers to spray fake oil on the building. Those outside the Interior Department yesterday chanted Death to the Black Snake, a reference to Line 3, a tar sands oil pipeline expansion from Canada across northern Minnesota into Wisconsin. Opponents say this pipeline violated treaty-protected tribal land, but they lost court challenges. Biden did not act to cancel the federal permit that allowed the pipeline and oil to flow beginning October 1. The protesters inside the building, including indigenous act how many more times are they going to say indigenous? Indigenous activists who've been leading the week's protests. The Indigenous Environmental Network issued a statement stating the indigenous leaders had occupied the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is an agency within the Interior Department. You hear this? Insurrection. The statement also referenced the 1972 occupation of the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where an estimated 500, 800 Native Americans walked inside the building and refused to leave for six days. Politicians do not care of us. Presidents will break their promises, but Mother Earth has always given us what we need to thrive, the statement said. We will not back down until our natural balance is restored. Hmm. Roy Durant, 36 of Pittsburgh, and Ra Morel Ali, 33 of Denver, were in the crowd of climate activists attempting to enter the building and said they were injured by police. In other words, they were storming the building. They're trying to break into the building. 
You won't get that kind of explanation from the Washington Compost, but that's what was taking place. That's why the police were using batons and tasers. They were trying to force their way into a federal building, the Department of Interior, an insurrection, if you will. Duran said an officer put him in a chokehold while hitting other protesters with his free hand. Police also used tasers on protesters, including Mara Ale, they said. In other words, they're protesters, I see. Shouldn't they be called rioters, Mr. Producer? Why are they protesters? No, they're rioters. Rioters. Let's see. Uh, the escalation was way out of proportion, Merrily Alley said. We don't have weapons, and we have a history of nonviolence. We've asked for these conversations. Indigenous people are not heard, and we have a right to go where our leadership can be heard. Ernest Joey Applegard Peltier. Peltier, that name sound familiar? A protester outside the Interior Department said his sister was inside and wanted to speak with Holland. Alpengar Patier is running to represent Minnesota's 7th Congressional District, also criticized Line 3 of Biden's actions on climate so far. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is kind of downplayed, isn't it? They call these people protesters. Well, police were injured. One was taken to the hospital. Police were injured. One was taken to the hospital. They had to use clubs. They had to use tasers. They entered the building, the Interior Department, a federal facility, illegally. They forced their way in. They fought their way in. There will be no commission, of course. There's barely a newspaper article. And yet that's exactly what happened. An insurrection. But they're insurrections and they're insurrections. I wonder what the... The Garland uh, Department of Justice is going to do to these rioters, indigenous or not. What are they going to do to the rioters? Maybe they should take that memo they issued targeting parents and other citizens and taxpayers at these school board meetings and change the heading to talk about these indigenous groups and these radical environmental groups. Because more violence occurred on Thursday at the Department of Interior building than has occurred anywhere across the United States of America in any school board meeting, in any, not mostly peaceful, but totally peaceful protest by parents and taxpayers. You see the double standard, of course. And this brings me to January 6th. And the Politburo that Nancy Pelosi put together She put it together like any totalitarian. This is not a serious committee. This is a committee that is intended to seek and destroy. It is subpoenaing people without any foundation laid for why they should be subpoenaed. Just because they feel they can drag them into a deposition, get a hold of their texts and their emails... And dig into former staff of President Trump. In fact, they've said, hey, we may even bring Trump in and Pence in. There is a serious constitutional here issue. It's called executive privilege. Well, you might say Trump's not president anymore. But the question is whether executive privilege follows an ex-president. Because otherwise you have Soviet-style events like you have with the January 6th so-called commission, which is nothing more 
than a never-Trumper, Democrat Party, Nancy Pelosi operation. People familiar with how Stalin and Mao and others conducted themselves are quite familiar with this. There's no balance on this commission whatsoever. So they subpoena, among others, Steve Bannon, who has nothing on the service whatsoever to do it January 6th. And yet now they voted to hold him contempt of Congress. Now the House of Representatives will vote. This is a setup. They have the majority. And then they will refer the matter for criminal contempt to the objective Department of Justice that's headed by a band of comrades, malcontents and miscreants, led by Mr. Conflict of Interest himself, the Attorney General of the United States. Just the News points out, Democrats flip-flop on contempt, seeking it for Bannon after opposing it for Eric Holder a decade ago. Benny Thompson, remember Benny Thompson? We told you about him. In his younger days, Benny Thompson supported groups that unleash violence against police officers. Now, of course, he's very concerned about that. They flip-flop on contempt, seeking it for Bannon after opposing it for Holder a decade ago. Now, I want to get into this. Because it's a serious matter. I'll get into this when we return. I'll be right back. Don't forget, this Sunday, Life, Liberty, and Levin, it's a killer show. I know you're going to love it. Charles Payne, Brent Bozell, me, of course, in my monologue. Um, 8 p.m. Sunday. If you can't watch it live, then you can always DVR it. I hope you will join us. It's a unique kind of program. I don't have 15 guests, not a conga line. And we dig quite deeply into a couple of issues and uh, with what I consider to be very, very important guests. And, of course, it's me. It's the one time that I do a cable TV show once a week on Sundays. I don't do it five times a week, eight times a week. No, just that once. Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And as long as you continue to watch it, I'll continue to do it. You stop watching it, I'm not going to do it. But so far, we've been hitting it out of the park, and that's because of you, and I want to thank you. Also... American Marxism, I want to thank all of you who have acquired copies, and there's many of you who have. We're on our way to 1.1 million in all formats. Uh, It is the least discussed book by the mainstream media and even some of our friends in the conservative movement. That's okay. It is the most discussed book in America. Wherever I go, people come up to me. They've acquired copies of the book. They ask me about the book. They thank me for the book. And they they ask, where are we going? What do you think? And we have wonderful conversations on the street, in a restaurant, what have you. Uh, So the book is, uh, it's ubiquitous. It's made a huge difference. Those of you who have not yet acquired a copy, you know, we have millions and millions of listeners. Uh, Those of you who have not, I want to encourage you to go to Amazon.com or this weekend when you're in Costco or Walmart or wherever you are, Barnes & Noble, Sam's, they all have them. Uh, go ahead and get your copy. I was in Walmart today, and uh, I mean, it's 40% off in Walmart. Walmart's done a hell of a good job. All the retailers have. 
and so, so is Amazon.com, quite frankly. So uh, go ahead and get your copies. And, you know, one guy wrote me, thought I was joking, when I said, look, the hard copies, they're going to be hard to get in about a month or six weeks. Why? Because there's a lumber shortage. And there's a supply chain shortage with lumber. I'm not kidding. And obviously, a hardcover book requires paper. Paper. If you're thinking about it for the Christmas or Hanukkah holidays or Thanksgiving to discuss it at the dinner table or as a birthday gift or just to acquire copies to hand out, you need to act now. I'm just telling you, you need to act now. Of course, the audio and the ebook will always be available, but the actual hard copy, I suspect it's going to get a little tighter. Benny Thompson, Adam Schiff, as Just the News points out, and other lawmakers demanding banning contempt citation walked out on 2012 House contempt vote on Obama, Attorney General Holder. Benny Thompson, Adam Schiff, other lawmakers who now demand Bannon be be held in contempt, that's what they voted today, walked out nine years ago on the House contempt vote on Eric Holder, Obama's Attorney General. And what a difference a decade makes. The very Democrats now pushing to find former Trump advisor Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with a subpoena from the January 6th investigation previously opposed such a penalty when Obama-Biden administration Attorney General Eric Holder defied a similar subpoena in the fast and furious gun-running probe. In fact, current January 6th Commission Chairman Benny Thompson, Democrat Mississippi, was among a group of about 100 members, mostly Democrats and Black Caucus members, who walked out and refused to participate in the historic vote in June 2012 against Holder. We cannot and will not participate in a vote to hold the Attorney General in contempt, the caucus members wrote at the time. We adamantly opposed this partisan attack and refused to participate in any vote that would tarnish the image of Congress or of an Attorney General who's done nothing but work tirelessly to protect the rights of the American people. And what exactly did Bannon do here? Nothing. They're fishing. The House ultimately voted 255 to 67 to find Holder both in criminal and civil contempt for failing to comply with subpoenas from the House Government Oversight and Reform Committee, the first time in American history that the nation's chief law enforcement officer faced such a penalty. Nearly all Republicans and just 17 Democrats voted in favor. The Obama-Biden Justice Department refused to prosecute Holder, and Congress went to court to enforce its contempt. Holder argued he wouldn't turn over the documents sought by lawmakers because he wanted to protect President Obama's claim of executive privilege. That is exactly what Bannon and company want to do. Protect President Trump's ultimate claim of executive privilege. A judge ultimately ruled against Holder, ordering him to turn over the documents, but sparing him from a finding of contempt that could have sent him to jail or forced him to pay a civil penalty. The probe ultimately unmasked one of the worst scandals of the Obama presidency, in which federal agents allowed guns to walk across the Mexican border and fall into the hands of drug traffickers, some of whom subsequently killed a U.S. border agent. But now many of the same Democrats from that era are on the other side of the contempt argument arguing Bannon should be penalized for defying his subpoena, even as other Trump advisors, like Mark Meadows and Kash Patel, cooperate with the probe. Quote, the select committee will use every tool at its disposal to get the information it seeks, and witnesses who try to stonewall the select committee will not succeed, 
All witnesses are required to provide the information they possess so the committee can get to the facts. Well, what information, what even prerequisite form of information do they have on Bannon, Meadows, or Patel? They have nothing. Nothing. So you see Schiff going out there, beating his chest, such as it is, about contempt when he walked out on the holder mat. Schiff is the biggest of the sleazeballs. I don't even want to call him a snake. I hate snakes. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello America, Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, Well, the enormous amount of money we put into our government schools seems to be paying off for the unions, the educational bureaucrats, the Democrat Party, but not for our kids, not for the students. Math and reading test scores, this is the hill, for the country's 13-year-olds have dropped sharply in comparison to the numbers from 2012 with some of the lowest scoring test takers falling the furthest behind. Data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, NAEP, showed that while 2020 average scores in reading and mathematics for 13-year-olds marked an improvement from NAEP's earliest results in the 70s, scores had declined since 2012. U.S. News and World Report reported this was the first major score drop in the subjects since they began tracking long-term academic achievement trends in the 1970s. In other words, it has plummeted. Perhaps even more troubling was the study's finding that some of the most significant drops were from students in the lowest performing percentiles. In math, for example, scores dropped for 9-year-olds in the 10th and 25th percentiles, Scores fell for 13-year-olds in the 10th, 25th, and 50th percentiles. In other words, those who were not doing well to begin with are doing much, much worse. I wonder why that is, Mr. Producer. They're being taught about race. They're being taught about genitalia. They're being taught about hating America. If they're being taught anything. And this is what happens when you don't have merit applied uh, because the NEA and the AFT reject it. Because the National School Boards Association rejects it. And we now know it's a left-wing Democrat hive over there. And the superintendents, same damn thing. All of these results are concerning. But the math results were particularly daunting. Particularly for 13-year-olds. According to Peggy Carr, the Associate Commissioner in the Assessment Division of the National Center for Education Statistics. None of these results are impressive. I asked them to go back and check the math numbers because I wanted to make sure the results were accurate. I've been reporting these results for years, for decades. Well, they are accurate. The results of the survey also indicated that fewer students reported reading for pleasure. In 1984, 9% of the students never or hardly ever read for fun. 
2020, 16%. These scores were collected just before the pandemic began, but fears that remote learning environments would lessen the quality of education during COVID-19 pandemic were not necessarily warranted. Are they kidding? Are they kidding? Of course they're warranted. They're worse now than they are in 2020, I guarantee you. Test scores for the 2020-2021 school year from various states and school districts indicated the pandemic could have affected student performance. States such as Michigan and Tennessee saw particularly sharp declines among more at-risk students, including minorities, students with disabilities, and those with economic disadvantages. Isn't it amazing? The NEA and the AFT and these school boards and these superintendents talk about a white-dominant society, pushing critical race theory, and yet it is they who run the classrooms in control of the curriculum and the testing and everything else, and it is under them that more at-risk students, including minority students with disabilities and those with economic disadvantages, are showing sharp declines. Sharp declines. Well... Well, well, well. The problem is we have an educational monopoly. It needs to be broken up. This is a position I've held for decades. This is something the wonderful Landmark Legal Foundation and others have been fighting decade after decade after decade. Landmark Legal Foundation brought a landmark case in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, litigated against the Wisconsin Education Association, the National Education Association, the NAACP, and others. What was the litigation about? School choice. School choice. One of our clients was a state representative, African-American woman in a relatively poor area. Her name was Polly Williams. And this litigation took place over a period of years. It cost an enormous amount of money. It went up and down the state court chain all the way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court twice. A parallel case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court twice. And finally, we and a few other groups won the issue. That school choice, including providing funds that follow the students where there's parental choice is in fact constitutional under the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the United States, the Wisconsin Constitution and the United States Constitution. People talk about school choice today. Well, when this was litigated, there was almost no school choice and the issue was whether or not the way it could be paid for school choice. And so you're listening to somebody who was associated and is with a group called Landmark Legal Foundation and its fantastic president now, Pete Hutchison, who was involved in the litigation, who helped pave that way. Who helped pave that way for America. So now people talk about school choice as a civil right. If we had not won, school choice would not even be on the table. Have I ever told you that, Mr. Producer? There'd be no school choice. 
So kudos to Landmark and the other groups that participated in that as well. Because it's the only way to save our children. This is a corrupt monopoly. Our schools obviously do not exist for our children. They exist for the school boards, the superintendents, the educational bureaucrats, and mostly the teachers' unions. That's where the money goes. You heard Terry McAuliffe. I mean, nationwide, even though he's a buffoon running for governor of Virginia, this guy has been on the National Democrat Party scene forever. Remember he was head of the DNC? The bag man for the Clintons? Dumb as a doorknob. Dumb as a doorknob. And I should also, as a footnote, tell you another story. When Joe Biden was running for Senate in 1972, when he was running for the Senate in 1972, he was running against an older gentleman who'd been a senator from Delaware for several terms. He really didn't want to run again, but the Republican Party encouraged him to run again. He was very popular in the state of Delaware. But it was going to be a very close election. So Joe Biden made a deal with the unions. Or I should say the unions came to Joe Biden and made a deal with him. They had no particular reason to support him. He'd been a flunky on the, uh, on the city council in Wilmington. Didn't have much to show for it. He was 29 years old, running for the Senate. They said, if we help you get elected, we expect you not only to support us, but never to cross us. You're going to be our guy in the Senate. He became their guy in the Senate. He won by an eyelash. This is why Joe Biden does what the teachers unions tell him to do. This is why Joe Biden won't do anything substantive about what's going on in the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. This is why he won't trigger an emergency to change the rules that the state of California have put in place to benefit one trucker over another. Because he's bought and paid for. And this is why the bill before the, the House of Representatives today has all kinds of cutout provisions for unions, not for independent business owners, independent truckers, or independent anybody. I'm not anti union, but I am anti unfairness. I'm all favorite competition, union, non-union, and so forth and so on. I'm really not. And a lot of union guys will tell you that. I don't know what the cops and the firefighters would do without a union. They'd be picked to pieces even more than they are already. But again, that's beside the point. My point is, that's why Joe Biden is not going to do what he needs to do in order to improve the situation with the supply chain. He's not going to defy. He's not going to defy them. Because he owes them. His career. But look at what these school boards, 
in these unions, in the curricula. Look at what it's doing to our students. It's making them dumber. Dumber. And look at what you're paying for this. The property taxes you pay on your homes, on your businesses, and other forms of taxes. The vast majority of it goes towards the school system. But they do not want to be held to account because merit is a cuss word to American Marxists. As I explained in American Marxism, that's just a white supremacy, white privilege, white dominant society thing. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. Okie dokie. We're going to have Brent Bozell on Life, Liberty, and Levin this Sunday, and Charles Payne, two great guests. They've got so much information. We're going to have a wonderful time. I hope you'll join us. And I have some killer statements thing, as well. Um, but our friends at Newsbusters, NBC ignores Loudon rapes, smears parents opposed to critical race theory, and edits audio. The corrupt media in America. And by the way, of the networks, of the networks, NBC is the worst. For months now, NBC has been assailing the concerned parents of South Lake, Texas, because they've been standing up to the tide of critical race theory being crammed down the throats of their children. And yesterday, despite new details in the already outrageous Loudoun County High School rape story, NBC Nightly News continued their assault on the community that has had enough of liberal propaganda. They even deceptively edited audio to make it seem as though the parents were in support of the Holocaust. Continuing their smears, suggesting the town was made up of rabid racists looking to drive minorities out of their community, anchor Lester Fairness's overrated Holt chided the town for being the center of a firestorm over diversity and inclusion efforts, Now secretly recorded comments, he said, from a top administrator about books on the Holocaust are sparking new outrage. That's right. NBC wanted to claim the town was now either made up of Holocaust deniers or Nazi sympathizers. The district already in the spotlight after parents clashed over its diversity plan, declared correspondent Antonio Hilton, without any context, now facing new pushback over which books are allowed in their libraries, with some teachers placing caution tape over bookshelves, calling the move censorship. She failed to mention that concerned parents had swept the radical race baiters out of the school board in an election and took their place earlier this year. And it's worth noting that at no point in this series has the network objectively sat down to speak with and show the side of those concerned parents. NBC has largely attacked their character. Hilton huffed about a parent who opposed an anti-racism book, a.k.a. critical race theory propaganda, being given to her child. Quote, the district sent educators new guidelines to vet all books, instructing them to not allow singular perspectives that could be considered offensive, she whined. This coming after Texas passed a law banning the teaching of concepts that could make individuals feel guilty and anguished due to their race. As part of this training, they were told to balance perspectives. And this is when the edited audio came into play. Hilton, the director of curriculum, Gina Petty, 
offers an example for teachers. Balance books about the Holocaust with an opposing view. Petty, make sure that if you have a book on the Holocaust, make sure that you have one that has other perspective. An unidentified woman. How do you oppose the Holocaust? Hilton, Gina Petty did not respond to messages requesting comment. Notice where NBC and Hilton decided to cut off the audio. In a more complete but still highly edited version on their website, Petty responded by saying, believe me, that's come up. But who's bringing that up? The audio ended without an answer. But it seemed as though it was a question brought up in an attempt to sink opposition to critical race theory. Earlier this year, Newsbusters caught NBC deceptively editing 9-11 audio to make a police officer look like a murderer. Reporter Hilton also spoke with two teachers whose identities they obscured, who claimed the school district was trying to shut down libraries and lashed out at parents. Hilton, the reporter, the district says they have not told teachers to ban books to completely shut down libraries. What are you seeing? Teacher two, that's a lie. That's a flat-out lie. How could you even make that statement? NBC spent three minutes and 12 seconds on this nonsense while continuing to ignore, ignore, New evidence that the radically liberal Loudoun County School Board was breaking the law by not recording sexual assaults. By not recording sexual assaults. As you know, according to Daily Wire investigative reporter Luke Rosiak, Loudoun County Public Schools did not record multiple known incidents of alleged sexual assault in schools dating back several years, despite a law that requires statistics about school safety incidents to be reported to the public which includes provisions holding school superintendents personally liable for violations, a Daily Wire review of public records found. In addition, NBC's omission of the Loudoun County school rapes, ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, and the Spanish-language networks Telemundo and Univision continued their blackout. Continued their blackout. NBC's vile smears of parents opposed to the poison of critical race theory. And their omission of the Loudoun County rapes were made possible because lucrative sponsorships from Dawn and Liberty Mutual. Dawn. You remember Dawn, don't you? The hand soap, the dish soap, and Liberty Mutual. You remember that with the stupid commercials? It's the insurance company with the stupidest of the stupid commercials. There you have it. You want me to take a break? Oh, that's not time yet. So what do you think of NBC editing audio? It's like this Katie Couric who edited an interview with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who condemned Kaepernick and kneeling, thought it was utterly inappropriate. This is why you hate the media. This is why we know the media are corrupt. This is why we know their propaganda operations, and they are destroying freedom of the press. I'll be right back. Mark Levin, tough as hell. That's why I like Mark Levin. And I'm not sure a lot of people like him. He's tough as hell. But I like him. I love him. Call in now. 877-381-3811. That's the man. The man they hate, the man we love. But of course, they're detestable. Well, Robert Gates, the former Obama defense secretary, also worked in multiple jobs in the 
Bush administration. I can't remember which one, maybe both. Well, basically, he's a consummate bureaucrat on the national security and defense side. And he's always had a problem with Joe Biden. He knows Joe Biden is a moron. And it is frightening that this man is the commander-in-chief. And even though not a single media outlet, except on Fox, where you have a number of great heroes that fought in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere, and patriotic hosts like Sean Hannity and several others, even though they remind their audience time and again that there are American citizens in Afghanistan, that there are patriotic Afghans who fought by our side in Afghanistan, you will not hear it from the propagandists in the corrupt media. You will not hear it from the White House. You don't even hear a question asked anymore. And, of course, the Democrats on Capitol Hill are busy doing what they always do, chasing Trump, because they're sick bastards, quite frankly. So Robert Gates is on 60 Minutes, and he's asked about this Afghanistan situation. Cut six, go. It was really tough. For a few days there, I actually wasn't feeling very well, Mm. and I realized it was because of what was happening in Kabul, and I was just so low uh, about uh, the way it had ended, if you will. And and I guess the other the other feeling that I had was that it probably did not need to have turned out that way. Well, President Biden said any withdrawal is messy. Certainly, the military considers the withdrawal the most dangerous uh, part of an operation, but but they really had a lot of time to plan. Uh, beginning with the deal that President Trump cut uh, with the Taliban. Uh, So that was in February of 2020. Robert Gates, who oversaw the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan from 2006 to 2011, told us President Trump failed to plan properly for the evacuation of Afghans who'd helped the U.S. fight the Taliban. Don't you love this part where they narrate? Don't you love it? We don't get to hear Robert Gates say that. We don't hear we hear Anderson Cooper, whose career top interview was of Stormy Daniels. Remember that, Mr. Producer? Three uh, boobs there, at least two boobs, as far as I can tell. And um, so he says, Robert Gates. He told us. Well, why do you have Robert Gates told us about Trump? Why don't you have him say what he said? Anyway, go ahead. It's also believes President Biden didn't act quickly enough after announcing in April he was pushing back President Trump's deadline for the U.S. withdrawal by four months. It's time for American troops to come home. Once President Biden reaffirmed that there was going to be a firm deadline date, that's the point at which I think they should have begun bringing those people out. And you know what's interesting? Gates isn't telling us anything we don't already know that the people should have been brought up much earlier. In fact, they weren't brought out at all. Uh, this was a, 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 a Class A screw-up. So horrific. And you're seeing exactly the same thing on the borders. You're seeing exactly the same thing with the economy and the supply chain. 
You're seeing exactly the same thing with inflation. You're seeing exactly the same thing with this legislation they want to force through. It's really quite shocking. This fantastic country where they're trying to impose a third world economic system on us. Which will drag us down. A degrowth movement, what I've talked about many, many times. Open borders. Name one country that has survived when it had open borders. Just name one country. None, none survives. None. It's impossible. None survive. And if the Democrat Party really had its way, if there wasn't a filibuster, there weren't some courts with some decent judges, what do you think they do to this republic? What do you think they do to the Constitution? And of course, when it comes to your individual liberty, you've got guys like DiCamio, who's removing Thomas Jefferson's statue. Thomas Jefferson. His statue. While they bow to the idol of Fauci. And his mandates. Thomas Jefferson. Unbelievable. Why don't they trash Franklin Roosevelt? Why don't they trash Franklin Roosevelt? I believe the order was 9033, the military order, and I'm doing this from memory, where he issued a military order for his generals to round up Japanese Americans and Americans of Japanese descent, forcibly removed them from their homes, took their homes, took their property, and moved them to internment camps in the interior of the country. 120,000 of them. They hadn't done a damn thing against the country. 120,000. Why do they close their eyes to Franklin Roosevelt? Because Franklin Roosevelt was the first successful American Marxist. That's why. They talk about him all the time. They embrace him all the time. The fact that he was a racist is of no consequence. The fact that he implored the New York Times and the Washington Post and other media outlets to ignore the Holocaust and urge them not to report on it. No big deal there, apparently. No big deal at all. Or Woodrow Wilson. How come they don't attack Woodrow Wilson? Well, some do, but most don't. Woodrow Wilson was a racist. He was a segregationist. He resegregated the civil service. Intentionally. When black leaders came to him, were very upset about what he had done and what he was doing. He talked down to them. Basically threw them out of his office. Woodrow Wilson. I want you to think about that. Woodrow Wilson was a lot worse than John Gruden. John Gruden had emails 
but he never actually segregated minorities from, from white people. What about Franklin Roosevelt? He was much worse than John Gruden. John Gruden had emails, but Franklin Roosevelt actually rounded up Japanese Americans and Americans of Japanese descent. How come Franklin Roosevelt doesn't get the Gruden treatment? How come Woodrow Wilson doesn't get the Gruden treatment? Why is that? You know why. Because they're iconic for the Democrats. The Democrats are not about liberty, whether civil liberty or individual liberty. They're about power. They've always been about power. This is a party that has always opposed Americanism. Always. And so they'll never get the Gruden treatment. What about Biden early in his career? The record's clear. He was a racist segregationist who opposed integration. Talked about the jungle. His friendship with one of the leading racist segregationists in the Senate. James Eastland. Notice how quickly that disappeared. Now he runs around calling everybody Jim Crow, you know. Oddly, like he has some kind of moral high ground in order to call everybody Jim Crow. Anyway, I thought I'd point that out. We'll be right back. in. Mr. Producer in America, I have lost over 20 pounds. Have you noticed that? Seeing me on the uh, Life, Liberty, and Living, you can't tell that? You look at my neck, isn't it much thinner? I've lost at least one of my double chins. I'm actually getting closer to 25 pounds. I was up to 200, I hope my wife's not listening, I was up to 242 pounds. On a six-foot frame. That's a little heavy, don't you think, Rich? So after this little event I had, what, six weeks ago? Four, whatever it was. Uh, I was read the riot act by her and by my cardiac, a cardiologist, Ann Safko, and by my kids. And so I'm really doing well. You know, I haven't had a dessert, a real dessert, since I was in the hospital. No dessert. And I don't eat to the point where I'm, you know, really loaded. I haven't had a French fry or an onion ring. This is true. I haven't been to McDonald's or anything like McDonald's. And I love McDonald's. People used to call me. I'd be at the drive through at McDonald's. And I would swear them the secrecy. I won't even tell you who they were. Hannity, Dermer, others. I'd say, don't say a word, and they wouldn't. But I am, uh, what else have I laid off? Laid off of, uh, really, a lot of junk. A lot of junk. So I, don't, I haven't had cupcakes, I haven't had cookies, I haven't had cake. 
used to, you know, get by the CVS or whatever and grab some licorice and maybe a Hershey bar. Don't do that anymore. I don't do it. Now they're really turning up the heat, though. You know, other things I need to eat, not just not eat. And drink a lot, a lot of water. I'm not a water drinker. Tastes like nothing to me. But I'm doing a better job. I really am. Not that anybody gives a damn about what I'm saying. I'm just thinking about it. And you know what's funny? I'm not walking around starving. You know, once your stomach shrinks a bit, you just don't need as much. I get hungry, but I don't get to the hungry to the point where I got to really, you know, constantly eat. So that's a good thing. So they say. So Mark, what is your secret? I have no secret. I'm not eating a lot of sugar. So I may have a bowl of, say, Rice Krispies in the morning with a banana on it. With lactose-free milk, since, you know, I'm lactose intolerant. That kind of holds me over. Then lunch. Maybe I have a steak sandwich. Julie kind of lets me off a little bit there. But no French fries. I don't even want any French fries. Maybe I'll have some corn. I love corn. I love corn. For all you corn farmers out there. But I also love bread. But I've had to knock off a lot of bread. That's considered a carb. Right, Mr. Producer? I'm even learning these stupid terms. What's protein? What's carbohydrates? And I don't even want to learn them. A buddy of mine, the former ambassador to the U.S. from Israel, Ron Dermer. I don't even know if he'd want me to say He's a vegan. And after I get out of the hospital, he's trying to talk me into vegan food. That ain't ever going to happen. I can never get used to eating cardboard, Mr. Producer. That is never going to happen. Or people, vegetarians. I, I can't, I just can't eat lettuce and plants without eating something more. So that's never going to happen. You just do some basic things. Some basic things. But what the hell do I know? I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. Here's something you will not hear. From so many people, you will not hear from CNN, John Avalon, who is a talentless know-nothing. You will not hear from uh, D. Lamone. You will not hear from, uh, who else, uh, Fredo Cuomo, Andrea Mitchell, Brian Williams, Tell Gunner Brian, Eugene Robinson, you know, the whole host of miscreants, malcontents, and radicals. And what is that? How come Florida's not in the news? How come Governor DeSantis isn't in the news? 
From the Daily Wire, Florida rate of COVID infections third lowest in the United States last week. By my calculation, that means 47 states in the District of Columbia were higher. How come Joe Biden hasn't mentioned Ron DeSantis in Florida? As the summer season has ended and the hot temperatures start to subside, writes Hank Berean, all across southern states, encouraging more people to be outside rather than inside together in the air conditioning, the rate of COVID-19 infections in Florida has plunged so rapidly, so rapidly that it has the third fastest descent in rates of cases in the nation over the last two weeks, trailing only Alabama and Hawaii. According to the New York Times chart yesterday, Florida's case rate per 100,000 people over the last week was 13. 13 out of 100,000. Third only behind Connecticut and Hawaii, which both had 11. Florida's 14-day change rate plunged 48%. Alabama's fell 61%. Hawaii's fell 51%. Notably, states farther north were found at the other end of the spectrum, including Colorado, where the rate rose 32%. Vermont rose 27%. Michigan rose 26%. Minnesota rose 22%. On October 1, the number of new COVID-19 cases continues to drop in Florida. The state today reported an average of 5,396 new cases per day over the last week. This is the fifth straight week the number of weekly COVID-19 cases has declined. Declined. The same day, the AP noted in a piece titled, U.S. COVID cases falling, but hospitals brace for winter wave. Health experts fear their next wave in northeast states as cold weather approaches. Many northern states are still struggling with rising cases. And what's ahead for winter is far less clear. In July, Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis pointed out, quote, what we said, I made this comment at the beginning of May. Look, this is a seasonal pattern. We knew it was going to be low in May, and it was. And we knew that at the end of June and July, it would go up, because that's what happened last year. That's not just unique to Florida. This guy is brilliant. He follows the science. He tracks the data. And he knows what he's doing. Speaking in Jacksonville, Florida in August, DeSantis added, what we're going to see is that you're already starting to see, but because you don't have the herd immunity through the vaccinations, You're going to start to see winter and fall waves in northern states. We have a summer season, but you're going to see that. And so I think that's something that should be stressed more and more. In late September, DeSantis announced that he had secured more doses of life-saving antibody treatment for Floridians. And his actions came despite the Biden administration taking control of the treatment and effectively reducing Florida's necessary supply. You know, Biden declared war on Florida. In several other Republican states, literally withheld life-saving antibody treatments. Literally withheld them. The Daily Wire noted the governor posted a video announcing the move. Captioned, Governor DeSantis announces acquisition of additional doses of monoclonal antibody treatments to counteract the federal government reducing Florida's supply of Regeneron monoclonal treatments. And so in Florida, you have a real governor. You have a a real thinker. 
And he's come under incredible attacks from quacks dressed up as scientists and medical experts on TV, from quack hosts and guests on CNN and MSNBC and elsewhere, from quack New York Times and Washington Post reporters and so forth. This governor has known what he's doing. Now, he's at a press conference today, the governor, and he had this to say about Biden and his mandates, hat tip, rumble, cut, 10, go. So we're looking at options to be able to fight back against Biden. And then, of course, I just think individual employees should be protected. This is not a time. Just think of Biden. He says, don't make the vaccines uh, divisive. Don't make the vaccines divisive. You are trying to take people's jobs away over this issue. You are trying to plunge people into destitution. You are taking away their livelihoods. Nobody else is doing that. You are the one that's being divisive about this to to say to a police officer who's been working uh, this whole time or a nurse or a firefighter that now they lose their job. Way before there was any vaccines, and we even knew what the heck was going on with, with, with you know, you go back to March, April 2020, there's so much unknowns. Those guys had to answer the call. Patient comes in, the nurses are there caring for them. Someone calls 911, the police and the fire, they're there. And they had to put, put themselves on there. And now you're going to toss them aside? So, so he is the one that's being divisive on this. We believe people should be able to make their own decisions. <laughs> You know, if Donald Trump chooses not to run, and I think he will run, not that I have insight in it, if he chooses not to run, Ron DeSantis has to be looked at as a future presidential candidate. In my view, I'll say what people are thinking. He truly does. He has to be viewed as a future presidential candidate. If President Trump runs this time, he will get the nomination. And he should get the nomination. But if he doesn't, this man is top-notch presidential material. And certainly, should Trump run four years later, this man is top-notch presidential material. There's a reason why people are flocking from all over the country to come to Florida. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. This is an extraordinarily, Florida is, diverse state. Extraordinarily diverse. In every way, geographically, in terms of its people, in terms of its businesses, and so forth. You've got parts of the state that are radical left. You've got parts of the state that are quite rural and southern in, in culture. And he manages to hold it all together. And he really has been the most, in my view, consistently accurate about how to handle this virus. He immediately started treating the elderly, going into the nursery homes and assisted living homes. I mean, compare that with what they did in the Northeast and in California and Michigan. He immediately went to therapeutics. And they were so effective that Joe Biden steps in and denies the state certain therapeutics after they federalized the distribution. So he goes to the companies directly and he says, all right, we'll buy them from you directly. He's not going to put up with that. 
He's taken on big tech. He's taken on Black Lives Matter and Antifa. He even speaks in defense of Columbus Day. Most people shy from this. Most politicians want nothing to do with this. When it comes to masks, he says those are parents' decisions. School boards being encouraged by the President of the United States to defy the governor, he's punishing them. Because the state controls the towns. You may not know this, but counties and cities and towns are the creation of states. You have first-class cities, second-class cities, third-class, depending on your state. They're not creations of the federal government. Ultimately, the governor's, the governor's in charge. The state legislature's in charge. This is why they've been targeting DeSantis, and the media have been targeting DeSantis. But congratulations, Floridians. The rate of infection is way down. The rate of deaths way, way down. As the governor said, this is a seasonal thing. But he's managing it better, in my view, than anybody else. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. As you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's a big action taking place in Virginia, big election coming up the first Tuesday in November, an off-year election, and that's the way it's done in Virginia. And a lot of attention's been applied to or paid to the governor's race, and that's important. And um, Glenn Youngkin will be on this program in, in, uh, in a week or so. Um, you also heard from Winsome Sears yesterday, fantastic, running for lieutenant governor. But there's a fantastic candidate who's also running for attorney general in the state of Virginia. And wouldn't it be wonderful if all three statewide constitutional positions flipped? And his name is Jason Miaris. Jason, how are you, sir? It is great to be with you, Mark. So much for uh, thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. Now, tell us about yourself. Tell the whole country about yourself because you have a very, very interesting background as well. Go right ahead. Well, listen, I like to say my, well, I'm a former prosecutor in Virginia Beach, represent that area in the House of Delegates now. Um, my story actually doesn't begin in Virginia Beach. It begins in Havana, Cuba, when a scared 19-year-old girl got on an airplane, penniless and homeless, and not knowing where her next meal was going to come from. And that was my mother, Mira Miares. And so, uh, you know, I tell my daughters all the time, gratitude is one of the most underrated of all human traits. I was raised to have such gratitude that I can live in this amazing country. So my mother fled. Uh, communist Cuba in the fall of 1965, leaving the only non-democracy in the Western Hemisphere. And almost 50 years to the day that she left in the fall of 2015, she was able to go into a voting booth and get a ballot and vote for me to represent her in the oldest democracy in the Western Hemisphere, the Virginia House of Delegates. And so that's what I call the American miracle. And uh, we'll be us if we ever forget that it is a miracle. It's a precious thing. And one of the things that makes it so precious is the fact that we're a country with the first written constitution and recorded history that empowers the individual rather than empowering government. And that is what has created more flourishing of human ingenuity and uh, prosperity than any country in the history of the world. And we have to remember that as a people, or we're quickly going to go to the way of some of these other, other countries. Very, very well said. And, uh, you know, crime in this country, including in Virginia, is going through the roof. Does the attorney general have some power to do something about that in Virginia? 
Yeah, I mean, you've seen a far-left liberal monopoly. If you don't think elections matter, if you don't think leadership matters, you just have to see what's happened in Richmond. We've got a two-year head start of what we've seen, this this insanity, what we're seeing right now in Washington. You had one-party control take over in 2019, and so what we have is had a criminal-first, victim-last mindset in Virginia that has pushed policy after policy that hurts police, makes it harder for them to do their job, and helps criminals. So, you know, you have a murder rate right now in Virginia, the highest it's been in decades. It's really public safety. Uh, all these great policies put in by Governor George Allen and others have been quietly chipped away. And so when you have a skyrocketing murder rate, you have a parole board that has been replaced by, I don't call them progressives, I call them regressives. They also have this social justice mindset, and they've let time and time again uh, cop killers, murders, and rapists out, sometimes with decades on their sentence. I mean, we're talking people like David Simpkins. This guy had 56 prior felony convictions, including 14 prior armed robberies, abduction, forcible sodomy. Supposed to be in prison of the year 2066. Mark, they let him out 46 years early. Wow. And you know what he did with his 56 chance to get his life straight? He committed his 57th felony. He walked into a convenience store, put on a ski mask, held a gun up to the head of a young clerk. You know, and as the prosecutor noted in that case, this guy, David Simpkins, should have never been in a position to harm anyone in our communities ever again. But he was because the McCullough Parole Board let him out. The majority of the people appointed on this parole board were appointed by Terry McCullough. The remaining ones were appointed by Ralph Northam. It is far left. It is a it is a scandal. You had a whistleblower come forward, say they're breaking the law to let out these violent criminals because they're not notifying the victims as required by law. And so the first thing I'm going to do as attorney general is I'm going to both subpoena. I'm going to go after the people on the parole board. I think Governor Glenn Youngkin's already pledged he's going to fire them. But so far, all you've had is Ralph Northam hiding this, refusing to answer questions. And that's exactly what we're seeing, not even counting the insanity we're seeing what's happening in the Loudoun, uh, Loudoun School District with these sexual assaults happening. People are outraged. Parents are outraged. And so the, our race is really a choice between myself, somebody who's been trained as a prosecutor, and my opponent who's basically a left-wing politician. And uh, I know voters are going to choose the prosecutor in this race. And that opponent of yours has been around forever. And, yeah. uh, and, 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 he, and he had to uh, confess at one point that he was in blackface and he was embarrassed by it, and, uh, but he didn't resign. Now he's running for re-election, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't forget, we had the blackface scandal that came out with Ralph, Governor Northam, and Mark Herring got up and said that Ralph Northam had, quote, lost the moral authority to lead Virginia. And then it came out just three days later that he had his own blackface scandal. And, of course, at that point, he didn't choose to hold himself to the same standards that he holds others. And, you know, that's the first test of leadership. He failed that test. And not just that, I mean, he has tweeted out that he has turned the attorney general's office into, quote, a progressive powerhouse and uh, sign on to every single left-wing lawsuit that you can imagine. But he hasn't done what is the first job as attorney general in Virginia. Uh, you know, newspapers and others reported as Virginia's top prosecutors, the top lawyer of the state, the top cop. He's failed at that job because you can just look at both uh, the murder rate, the flood of fentanyl that is flooding into Virginia. In the city of Richmond alone, you've had nine times the number of deaths from fentanyl in the first uh, several months of 2021 as you've had from gun violence. So, you know, we, we have a host of problems, a host of we have a crisis at the border. Mark Herring has stood by, just like he did with the parole board. He did nothing to stop it. That's going to be very, very different than me. I'm going to go after those people. I'm not going to be afraid to go after those violent criminals. I, he, he has a criminal first, victim last mindset. I have a victim first mindset. I think that's the difference. 
America and Virginians, you're listening to Jason Miaris. He's running for Attorney General of Virginia against a soft-on-crime, I would argue, even worse than that. In many respects, pro-criminal Attorney General. We've seen these kinds of Attorneys General and prosecutors throughout the country who are backed by the hard left and so forth. Let me ask you this. Um, The Attorney General of the United States says that he wants to coordinate with state prosecutors and local prosecutors against parents and school boards and so forth. Uh, now, we only have a minute, but I'd like to hold you over the bottom of the hour if you're available. Sure. Let's, let's start on this. What, what do you make of that? I mean, I think that's such an outrageous misuse of FBI resources. As I mentioned, there's a, there's a crisis on the border right now that's flooding our communities in Virginia with fentanyl. For them to basically go after, you know, law-abiding Virginians that are concerned about critical race theory, concerned about the fact that you have school boards presumably not taking seriously sexual assault in schools. I think it's a, it is, you know, the right leaders focus on the right priorities. Talk about focusing on the, the wrong priorities. They should be focusing on the border and not this. We will be right back with uh, Attorney General candidate in the state of Virginia. But America, I believe you're going to find this quite compelling, too. His name is Jason Niaris, and we'll be right back. Mark Levin, the thunder on the right. Call in now, 877-381-3811. Will the Commonwealth of Virginia return to its roots and respect individual liberty and public safety and private property rights? Or will it continue on this road where it just becomes another blue state, another failed government, another failed economy? That's the question. And it's a question the whole country is interested in seeing as we fight and push in every corner of this country to get our country back. And that's one of the reasons we're talking to Attorney General candidate in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Jason Miaris, uh, who's running against an old lefty, uh, and they couldn't be more different, as you can hear. Now, Jason, let me ask you this. You've been campaigning all over the state. What are you finding? Well, listen, I think the first thing you're seeing is people are so concerned about safety, and not just safety in the neighborhood, safety in their schools. And to give you an idea of what happens when you have a far-left liberal monopoly and when there's no check and balance, you the Democrats take over in Richmond, all powers of government in 2019, and one of the insane bills they passed, and there's a lot of bad legislation, was HB 257, which ended the mandatory reporting requirement of sexual assault in our schools to police. And so as a result, it used to be mandatory, then it became discretionary. We publicly said at this time, this is going to hurt Virginians. This is going to inevitably lead to schools that don't report assaults. They're supposed to report. It was this whole social justice creed that they were pushing forward. They passed it. We publicly told the governor this is going to absolutely get to end up with innocent Virginians being harmed. Well, guess what happened? We found out in Loudoun County, kind of not only getting the school boards, getting things wrong with critical race theory, you know, raising an entire generation of children to learn to hate their country. They can't even do the most basic function, which is to make sure when our kids go to school, when you drop your child off at school, that they're safe. Because it came out that an individual sexually assaulted a ninth grade uh, young female victim, allegedly, in the bathroom. And then um, the school, what's so tragic is the school board then allowed this student 
to transfer and go to another school in which a second alleged sexual assault took place, also against a young female victim. And so now we are trying to unpeel the layers with what did they know, when did they know it, why was, when was the police actually notified, why was this individual that was already had allegations of a horrific sexual assault in a bathroom at a school, why was he allowed to attend another school, why was he allowed to essentially commit another sexual assault. And so everywhere you go, particularly in Northern Virginia and Loudoun, when, even when the Washington Post has to cover these type of stories, you're seeing why people see this criminal first, victim last mindset in Richmond is causing such a concern, why we need a desperate new change of leadership, top to bottom. And so, you know, there's an old saying, a neoconservative is a liberal who got mugged by reality. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of voters in Virginia that have been mugged by the reality of what this far left agenda that's been in Richmond. And they're all anxious, begging, dying to go vote uh, on November 2nd. And so uh, that's why we have the wind at our sails. That's why we have so many people. I was with Glenn Youngkin last week uh, in Chesterfield. They had over 1,000 people show up just at a Friday night rally. I mean, there's just such energy and enthusiasm. You go in the old town of Alexandria, one of those liberal pockets uh, in the entire state, there's red Glenn Youngkin signs everywhere. And so people know it. They feel it. We think we're on the way of making real history here in Virginia, and we couldn't be more excited. As long as we're not too cocky. you got to fight like you're behind, right? Well, exactly right. And, uh, you know, this loud in school issue that just emerged literally just this week. I mean, and, and Governor Ralph Northam, who can definitely give his opinion on every single left-wing social cause on the planet, had a press conference today, and he refused to take questions asking if he regretted citing that bill in the law that ended the mandatory reporting requirement of sexual assault uh, to police in schools. He just simply walked out of the press conference. And, you know, the idea of holding government accountable, I know it's foreign to them, but I can tell you right now, day one, uh, Glenn Youngkin is going to fire this parole board, and, and we're going to go, go forward with smart policies that are going to protect Virginians. And we're also going to go after these social justice prosecutors that have been elected in Fairfax and Loudoun that are refusing to prosecute cases. You have the Fairfax Commonwealth attorney who had a five-year-old that was molested and raped over the course of a year, over a year, the perpetrator was eligible for a life sentence. And he didn't like the fact that he was eligible for a life sentence. He thought it was too hard on a child rapist. So he dropped some of the charges, reduced it to a 17-year sentence over the objection of the family of the victim. And, And because of geriatric parole in Virginia, which I tried to get rid of, this perpetrator, this child rapist, is eligible for parole in 10 years. Mm-hmm. 10 years. And so those are the type of stories, I mean, when they're, like I said, when even the Washington Post is forced to cover it, Virginians see it, they know something's wrong, they want to change. I know that we're going to continue to put the uh, pedal to the metal, get over that finish line, and have a great night uh, on November 2nd. What we know the... the eyes of the world are on yeah. Virginia, so what we're telling everybody is, hey, if you want to see this madness in Washington stop, because I can't tell how many leaders in Washington have told us everybody in D.C. is watching Virginia. And if we win in Virginia, the Biden agenda gets stopped because every single Democrat and every single moderate district is going to take notice and say no way. And so we're encouraging everybody, if you can't vote, come in and support. So the outside union money and all the other liberal left-wing special interest money, go to my website, jason4ag.com, jason4ag.com, the number 4ag.com. Do what you can because everybody in D.C. is watching this race. Everybody around the country is watching these races. We do it right. We're going to have a clean sweep in Virginia just like we did in 2009, and it was a great preview of the 2010 you know, Republican sweep uh, into Congress. And I think that's where we're headed right now, and 
really help. Uh, I'm glad that you're uh, showing a spotlight on all of these issues. All right. We appreciate it. And, uh, again, if people want to help you, it's Jason4AG, Jason4AG.com. Jason4AG, the number 4AG.com. Yes, sir. All right. Good luck, my friend. Thank you, sir. We'll get it done. All right. You take care. That's Jason Niaris. Now, what's interesting to me, among other things, all right, so he, his, his mother escaped from communist Cuba. The candidate for lieutenant governor... Winston uh, uh, Sears, she is from Jamaica. Now look at the diversity. Look at the diversity on this ticket. Now the Democrats and the media like to talk about diversity, but when it comes to Republicans, and in this case when it comes to solid conservatives, they stop talking about diversity. You understand what I'm saying? I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller actually uh, got a very decent judge um, who doctors pay and did a few other things, but didn't destroy him as the prosecution for the Marine Corps wanted them to do. We had his parents on this program, as you well know, the Shellers. And um, I want to thank all of you, as always, you Levinites, you're such wonderful patriots. The whole world's blessed to have you. You spoke out. You made your opinions heard. We had members of Congress attending the hearings as well. Louis Gohmert, among others. And I think the outcome was as good as it possibly could have been. Uh, So uh, we want to salute um, Lieutenant Colonel Scheller. And we want to wish his family all the best. All the best. As Americans are still in enemy territory. And patriotic Afghans who fought alongside us are being hunted down, no doubt about it. And you can thank Joe Biden and Secretary Austin and General Milley. That's right. You can thank them. What a disgrace. Joan, Nashville, Tennessee on the Mark Levin app. Joan, go right ahead, please. Yes. Uh, Well, Mark, it's so great to be on here tonight. I just finished your book, American Marxism. And it was wonderful, so thank you so much for writing it. Thank you. And I wanted to just say that um, I was reading the chapter, We Choose Liberty, and you were talking about everybody needs to be an activist. And I wanted to tell you about something exciting that's going on uh, here across the U.S. Um, I'm the founder and director of the 917 Society, and I know you know what 917 stands for because you are such a constitutional person. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but it stands for Constitution Day. And we are honoring and celebrating Constitution Day in our schools. You know, most people don't know it's a federal mandate that all schools that get federal money are to have a program on the Constitution on or around September 17th. I'm sure you know that, but most of your listeners probably don't know that. No, that that is wonderful. 
Yeah, so several years ago, I was asked by someone who had ran for governor in the 60s here in Tennessee if I'd ever read my constitution, and he pulled a pocket constitution out, and I said, no, I haven't. And I just became obsessed with the fact that I had never read it, and I started asking everybody, and I was getting 99 out of 100 people have not read the actual constitution. And so I made that my mission, and so now we've got others joining us, and this year we distributed almost a million constitutions across 16 states to eighth graders across the U.S. to honor and celebrate Constitution Day. That is fantastic, Joan. Absolutely fantastic. And our goal this year, we're working right now, we've got a wonderful group of people. Everybody can get involved with us. If you love the country, you love the Constitution. Where do they go? Go on our website and they go to 917society.org. 917society.org. Excellent, excellent. I got her all. Don't get mad at me. Don't hang up. We want to send you a signed copy of American Marxism. Folks, go there. It sounds like it's fantastic. And I want to thank Joan. We can all do our part, and Joan's doing her part. That's very, very great. All right, let's see. Let's go to Denise, Denver, Colorado, XM Satellite. Quickly, please. Go right ahead. Hi, Mark. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you for educating me. And I love the way you speak about your wife and your family. Thank you. So we're in rural Colorado, and my husband and I, um, he's a doctor, and we have a private practice, a rural private practice, and we are having problems getting medical supplies, one of which is some x-ray supplies. My husband's a a foot and ankle doctor and takes a lot of x-rays and our distributor said that it's sitting out in the pacific so, all right i'll tell you what let's take joan's number because we're up against it here joan uh at the end of the program and we will call you on monday i'm sorry denise denise let's take denise's number we'll call her on monday sorry denise all right in america every friday for you
Well, my dad passed away three years ago today, and he is very, very badly missed. Don't forget Life, Liberty, and Levin this Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, folks. I look forward to seeing you there. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Good night, Spritey, Griffey, Pepsi, Zelda, long list, unfortunately. Smokey, Gigi, Indian, Little Barney. Don't forget, folks, please get your copy of American Marxism, if not for you, for somebody you know. Good night, Dad. Good night, Mom. And good night, Leo. I'll see you next week.